Well, as we begin our time in God's Word today, I want you to begin with me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. While you're turning there, we are in week three of a little series that we've set aside and called the Gospel Class. And the reason is to make sure that we recognize the realities of the gospel that God has, has put in our hearts because they're presented in his word so that we know them and can worship him all the more accurately. But also so that we know the gospel so that we can present it more accurately. That we understand and can present the good news of who God is and that he saves This is the gospel class number three, and we're calling this one today gospel readiness, which means that we understand and can present the good news of the gospel. Let me just set this, uh, we've looked at this text for the last two weeks. Let me read it again just to warm our hearts to the reality of the truth of the news that Jesus saves that we just sang about. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to his half-brother James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." There's an assignment that I've given different classes I've taught over the years. I've had the, the joy and the privilege of teaching college classes at, at uh, college, Christian universities and also seminary classes at several seminaries as well. This assignment is the same, and oddly enough, it mostly has produced identical results, very similar results. It's a bit of a pop quiz with no advance notice. I guess that's the definition of a pop quiz. There's no advance notice, right? It's a pop quiz that I I give to the class at the beginning of the course, and I ask everyone in the class to get out a sheet of paper, clean, nothing written on it, and a writing instrument, pen, pencil, doesn't matter. It's a one-question quiz, and you have five minutes to complete the quiz. Only five minutes. I start the timer, I beep the timer when it's off, and everyone's finished, and we talk about what's on their pages. Here's the quiz. Answer this question. What is the gospel? Go. Here's what's interesting. Both groups, the Bible college students, the 18, 19 year olds, as well as the seminary students with theological background, theological education, both groups struggle to get started, and both groups struggle to finish once they start. There's a sort of paralysis that grabs the younger students. What should I include? How can I make sure I don't, I, that I put enough in so that someone would be, would be saved by what I'm writing? 
But the seminary students also experience a sort of, sort of paralysis. They say, what can I leave out? And they want to add everything and anything related to the gospel, wonderfully so, to try to cram it into these five minutes on this one sheet of paper. Now, by now, I trust that all of you have already in your mind gone to, what would I write? So everyone take out a sheet. No, I'm not going to do that. If I ask you to take out a sheet of paper, blank sheet of paper, said you got five minutes, write down what is the gospel. Or if I said this, you have five minutes to write a message to someone who is going to die in 10 minutes, and you have five minutes to write so that they know enough to go to heaven. What would you write? What would you include? What would you leave out? What's primary? What's peripheral? As you mature as a believer, you, I think, should have several, not versions of the gospel, but several presentations of the gospel that's kind of in your mental arsenal. First, you have the one to two minute gospel presentation. That's with the waiter or the waitress or the salesperson. It's a very quick interaction. I remember uh, one time uh, in Los Angeles, there was a, a man just down the street from me in a 7-Eleven, and, I, and uh, he asked, I was dressed nicely, and he said, where are you going? I said, church, and he, he said, oh, why? And I remember thinking, there's people in here, I've got about 90 seconds. Do you have a 90-second version of the gospel that you could present to someone? How about the 5 to 10-minute version? You're standing in line making returns after Christmas, <laughs> And you're standing in line with some, uh, of course, with a six-foot distance between you. And you begin talking, and somehow the gospel comes up because you brought it up. And you've got about five minutes, seven minutes, ten minutes until you get up to make your return. Do you have that version of the gospel? That presentation? How about the one to three-hour edition? You're sitting on a plane from here to Atlanta, from here to Los Angeles, from here to Boston. You have maybe from 50 minutes up to three hours and you're sitting by someone, and you have fuller understanding, to, to fuller availability to talk about the gospel realities. Do you, do you know what you would say with that situation? And what about to your neighbor? That you may have weeks, months, years, decades to talk about the gospel, and you're putting together a piece of an intricate puzzle and a simple puzzle for them to see, saying enough at any moment, but also adding to what you've done. Do you, do you understand what I mean by several editions, several presentations of the gospel? This is only possible and only doable if you have thought through and familiarized yourself with the individual elements of the gospel. I'll never forget, I was a youth pastor in Detroit. Kim and I were newly married and I was there for a few years serving as a youth pastor and there was a visitor who came and he said, hey, can I talk to you this week? I said, sure. And so he came, he sat down in my office and I, I kid you not, this is what he said. Rick, how can I be saved? And it, I'm just not used to being asked that. And I remember going, uh, 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 hang on, let me get my thoughts together. Now, I fumbled through a presentation of the gospel. He eventually was converted and, and uh, came to Christ and thrilled about that. But I was a little bit disappointed at how unprepared I was for that question. So you're somewhere today and someone says to you, 
I, I just got a couple minutes. Can you tell me how to go to heaven? Can you tell me how to be saved? Saved from what? Would you have that answer? Well, that's why we've turned our attention to the gospel class. We can never get beyond the basics of the gospel. We can never get beyond the nuances of the gospel, the application of the gospel. But it's only if we come back and look deeply at it and understand it. And this is my fear. I I, I love you. This is my greatest fear for Mission Road Bible Church is that we would somehow lull ourselves into a spiritual slumber by making assumptions about the gospel without good understanding of it. So what is the gospel and why does it matter? We started looking at this last week and I was a little bit over um, uh, zealous and didn't get through it all. So I'm going to do a quick repeat, recap, and then pick up in the point that we left off last week. We said we could break the gospel down into three essential parts. Three essential parts. Three essential parts of the gospel. The first is the simplest, facts to believe. There are facts in the New Testament that you have to believe that are historical facts. These are absolutely happen, not mythology, not in any way legend. These are uh, 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 non-mythological, actual historic facts that happen surrounding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the place you have to begin to understand those facts is the New Testament itself And the Bible as a whole. Jesus and the gospel are not in the categories of mythology, fairy tales, or legends. Specifically, we need to look at Jesus' life and his teaching. What he did, what he said, what he taught. Do you see and take the life of Jesus Christ as really happening? Not like what was famously purported several decades ago as the Jesus Seminar where they voted with actual red, I mean, excuse me, pink and white and black marbles after they read a passage as to whether or not that really happened or not. Do you ever find yourself looking at the New Testament account of Jesus' life and wondering if that's real or not? You have to believe in his facts, in the facts of his life and his teaching. And we know that that's A challenge now, and it was a challenge back in the day of the New Testament because Paul said, if anyone comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, and preaches to you another Jesus you have not heard from us, that tells us that back then and even now, people are using Jesus' name, they're using the term gospel. He says another gospel, a different gospel which you have not received. They're using our language, our words, and their dictionary. We have to make sure that the dictionary that we have to understand biblical terms, gospel realities, is and is only the Bible. Secondly, we need to remember Jesus, the facts of his suffering and death. This wasn't a sad story that people made up to have an Easter holiday. This really happened. He really died for real reasons. He suffered He was prophesied to suffer in Isaiah 53 and he drank the wrath of God in our place. And then thirdly, Jesus' resurrection and reign. Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians 15, if you keep reading that, if Christ has not been raised in verse 14, then our our preaching is in vain. vain. Your faith is in vain also. No resurrection, no Christianity. He says if If Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. No resurrection, no 
forgiveness of sins. We should all be pitied for believing this. Jesus is alive. He's risen from a real death. This was no swoon theory that some people purported where Jesus kind of passed out for three days in the coolness of the cave, woke him up, and he came back healthy. No, he was dead and buried, as we read earlier, and God raised him from the dead, and he is now alive and reigning in heaven and is coming back for his people. Those are facts. If you can't believe the facts, then the meaning of those facts will never have resonance in your soul. Which brings us secondly to theology to understand. The facts about Jesus' life, the biblical facts that point to our Lord and Savior are different facts than George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln. Those were facts that happened. These facts surrounding the Lord Jesus had theological significance. They brought heaven and earth together. We broke that down by saying, first of all, we need to remember who God is for us in Christ. Who is God for us in Christ? He is God to us in Christ. He is man for us to God in Christ. The God-man. He is our representative, our Savior, our Lord, and our substitute. To see Christ is to see God. To misunderstand Christ is to misunderstand God. Secondly, what God has done for us in Christ. He's lived a perfect righteous life so that that life that he lived could be transferred to our spiritual account. He died for us in our place as a substitute for us in our, in our sin so that he could apply our sin to his death. And we looked at the big terms like penal substitution, substitutionary atonement, propitiation, imputation. All that is wrapped up by just simply saying, We need righteousness to go to heaven and we need forgiveness of sins. God gave us the forgiveness of sins by transferring our sins to Christ on the cross so that he took our death for us. The wages of sin is death. We need righteousness to go to heaven. He imputed, he took the righteous holiness, perfection of Jesus, put that in our account, not making us perfect, but making our standing before God holy and justified and acceptable. That's what God has done for us in his life and death and resurrection. What God is doing for us in Christ now, he's active now. He is transforming Christians into the image of his son, sanctifying us, making us holy. We'll come back to that in a few minutes when we talk about repentance. He didn't save us and walk away, in other words. He's loving us, supporting us, good to us, good for us. He cares about each problem that we have each burden we bear and then God what God will do for us in Christ he'll take us to heaven he will glorify us remember salvation is three parts justification when we come to faith in Christ sanctification where we're becoming more like his son and conform to the image of becoming holy during life and then glorification when we go to be with him after death and we are like him no sin justified sanctified glorified forever. That brings us to the third 
reality. And that is the response to make. Facts, theology, a response. So just a little head start. When I'm, when I'm talking to someone about the gospel, I, got, I have to have this little checklist in my mind. Have I talked about the facts? Have I, have I explained the theology? Have I, have I called for and asked for a response? There are two responses that anyone should have to the gospel. The first is faith. It's to believe, belief. One of the most amazing dimensions of the gospel is the way that God has arranged to save sinners. I remember going through this in Romans and I was so freshly made aware of this. I remember driving on on Mission Road through Prairie Village actually thinking about this and going, no way, This this can't be like it's said to be. And what I mean by that is God has done all of this work for us, all of this work to us, and he gives it to us by believing it. We've talked many times before that there are only two religions in the world. The religion of human achievement, that's every religion on the planet. Human achievement, what man can do to make himself better, to get God to like him and bring him to heaven. And secondly, the religion of divine accomplishment, what God has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. Take away sin, grant us righteousness. Do you believe that? Can I, can I just have a quick pastoral counseling moment with you that I've had with my own heart more times than I can count over the decades of my Christian experience? It's hard for us to think that that's enough just to believe. In fact, the entire theological basis of the Roman Catholic theology of salvation is that faith is not enough. It's faith plus works. We cooperate with God in justification. We believe what we cooperate with God in sanctification after we're saved. It's almost too good to believe that we had a debt we could never pay we needed righteousness we could never earn. And God did all of that for us. And our sense of indebtedness, our debtor's mentality, makes it very hard to say, yes, it was all God. We want to participate and pay. And when we do that, that can make us very susceptible to a lack of assurance. Because once you believe that you participate in making yourself acceptable to God, the second you are not making yourself acceptable to God, guess what you lose? All your assurance. What a God who has saved us in spite of us. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. I won't take the time. We spent many weeks in Romans chapter four looking at this, that this is nothing new. God justified, justified means to make right before himself, to make holy and righteous, to make acceptable to God. He justified Abraham by Abraham believing God and God did what? Reckoned, accorded it as righteousness. The same principle that worked in Abraham is with us. We believe God and he gives that to us as righteousness. Romans chapter three. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested 
Romans 3.21, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, for all those who believe. Righteousness comes to us by believing. And then he says right after that, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by, his gra- by, by grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is the same for everyone. No one has a leg up toward God on anyone else. We all come to the cross. We all come to God in the same position as needy sinners. He said it so clearly a few verses later, Romans 3, 28. We maintain that a man is justified, made right before God, by faith apart from the works of the law. All of our intuition fights against that truth. Paul preached so strongly that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone in the first four chapters of, first five chapters of Romans that by the time he gets to chapter six, he says, what should we say then? Should we keep sinning that grace would abound? In other words, in other words this is such a good deal. If he covers all my sin, why not have Christ answered? He says, no, 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 you, don't, you misunderstand. May it never be. And then he talks about in all of, the first half of chapter six, how pursuing righteousness and dealing with sin is critical. And we we anchor ourselves on that, but don't miss the fact that Paul preached grace through faith so strongly for five chapters that the only natural conclusion to that would be that I don't have to do anything. And I think we all kind of smuggle works-based reality sometimes into our gospel. And it shouldn't be there. It's belief and faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. That's that righteousness we need to be accepted by God. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That tells us there's no such thing as a secret saved saint. You understand what I mean by that? Well, I, you hear people say, I have a private religion. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't talk about my, my faith with others. No, this says you confess it with your mouth. John explains our need to believe like this, John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How? Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's all the work of God. We believe what God has done. Insightful account is recorded, an insightful account in, in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, what a, tell you what, if you want to have some, some amazing, wonderful, fun, page-turning devotions, just read the book of Acts, especially when you get to Paul and Silas. They're arrested. They're thrown in jail. I wish I had the time to read the whole account. They're, they're singing. They're praising God. They're in jail. About midnight, Acts 16, 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God in prison and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there came a great earthquake. 
so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors, the prison doors were opened and everyone's chains unfastened. Just use your sanctified imagination and see this. Earthquake, doors come open, shackles fall off arms and legs. When the jailer awoke, he saw the prison doors were opened. By the way, why did he wake up? Earthquake. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Why? He was just going a shortcut to his execution, which he knew would happen if he was on watch and they escaped under him, he would be executed. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. This indicates he had his sword out, Machaira, a short dagger, and was about to stab himself to death. Paul sees this and says, Stop, stop, stop. We're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. After he had brought them out, he asked a question. Now, before I say, look at this question, you have to ask, why would he ask this question? The reason he would have asked this question is he would have heard Paul talking, heard Paul and Silas singing, heard him preaching to the other prisoners, and perhaps even had a conversation with himself about the gospel. So what's his response to this situation? Sirs, Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Critical question. Listen to what Paul says. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. It's the same for you and everyone in your family. It's belief. So can I just ask you, do you, do you believe in the truth? Do you believe in the facts, the theology of Jesus of Nazareth, that he is God in flesh, that he has offered you salvation because of his death. Do you believe that? But belief alone is not the only criterion by which God judges the sincerity of our faith. Secondly, repentance. The first words in Mark's gospel that he records Jesus saying gives us our bullet points for this essential part of the gospel. Mark 1 verse 14, now after John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. You got that? Jesus is preaching the good news of God. What's the response? This is what he says. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the king was there. Here's his admonition. Repent and believe the gospel. Where do you get these two points, Rick? Jesus. We get them from Jesus. Belief and repentance. Now, what is repentance? Let me, let me give you a very shorthand definition and I'll, I'll say it a couple times. Just listen before you even start writing. Repentance means to fundamentally change your mind about Jesus so that your life is redirected to follow him. I'll say it again for you. Repentance means 
to fundamentally change your mind about Jesus. Meta noeo, change your mind. You think differently and better and accurately and in faith about Jesus. Repentance means to fundamentally change your mind about Jesus so that your life is redirected to follow him. Now, whether or not repentance is a part of the needed response to faith has been a serious and significant debate in the last four decades in evangelicalism. It's basically come down to a phrase called lordship salvation or the lordship debate. The debate boils down to this. I've talked about this other times, but let me give you the the Cliff Notes version for it. The non-lordship position is a two-stage commitment to the gospel. You believe the gospel and later you commit your life to his lordship and then you become a disciple. The lordship position means to truly believe in Jesus is to believe who he is. He is master, he is kurios, he is lord. So to come to him involves not only belief but that belief issues forth in submission to him as Lord. And lest anyone be confused, that is the position, that second one, that we at Mission Road believe, hold to, and teach with passion. There are no two-stage Christians. You believe and then you're in, then later you become a disciple. Nowhere in the scripture is that laid out. Secondly, you don't believe and then later you make Jesus Lord of your life. (laughs) Can anyone make Jesus Lord? No, no, it's who he is. True belief comes to him as he is. Listen to Paul's words to Titus. Titus chapter two, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. So here comes the announcement of salvation. What does salvation mean? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's repentance. Looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from every lawless deed. Part of his redemption was to save us from sin, not give us a reason to go continue in sin so we can be forgiven for it to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He saved us to make us pure like his son, zealous for good deeds. And then he says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, this is important, Titus. You will have pushback on this, that the coming of the gospel instructs us to deny ungodliness and to pursue holiness. John's clarity is unmistakable. I mean, this is, this is heavy. Ready? 1 John 2, verse 3. By this, John says, by what I'm about to say, by this we know we've come to know him. Now stop right there. Whatever comes next is important. Would you agree with that? By what I'm about to say, we know we've come to know him. If, if, how do I know I'm a Christian? If, We keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, but does not keep his commandments, verse four says, 
is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps, literally abides in, minnow, lives in his word. In him the love of God has truly been completed or perfected. By this we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to live or walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, and if you listen, and I know you do, and you read, which I know you can, you would hear that and say, whoa, that's almost suggesting perfectionism. But in order to prove that that's not what he's talking about, reverse back just five verses. First John chapter one, previous paragraph, verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, that means we're sinning, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Is that clear? This is not Promoting perfectionism is promoting the direction of our life. It's promoting that we're submitting to Jesus as Lord. Peter preached the same repentance in the book of Acts. Let me give you a couple of statements from his first two sermons. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. His next sermon in Acts 3. Repent and return, verse 19, so that your sins may be wiped away and at times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So what is repentance if, if we have to keep doing it? Repentance means that you fundamentally change your mind about Jesus so that your life is redirected to follow him. Right after Jesus said, believe and repent, he went and called four disciples and he added to believe, repent, another admonition. You know what it was? Follow me. Follow me. It's the same for us. But the most penetrating instruction about repentance comes from the lips of Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 13, verse three, he says, I tell you, Unless you repent, you will lack all likewise perish. He had just told a story where there was no repentance and they perished and he said, you too, unless you repent, you will perish. That's code for end up in hell. And on the Sermon on the Mount, in that great sermon up in Galilee, the Lord issued the most piercing comments about repentance ever uttered about following him. Each time I read this passage, I feel a pit in my stomach and just want to sit down with each person at Mission Road and say, don't be here, please don't be here. Matthew 7, 21 Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Stop right there. 
he is saying that there are such things as, are you ready for this? Unsaved believers. James said the same thing. Faith without works is dead. You believe something, but you haven't applied your faith to that, so it's not a real belief. Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who does? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he gives us a a preview. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name, cast out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You hear what's going on there? The life is full of sin and lawlessness even though you say you have belief. Those are incongruent. Please hear the footnote. This is about progress, not perfection. This is about self-awareness, not self-exaltation. But Jesus said there will be some who get all the way to the judgment having deceived themselves as to being truly converted when they never were. How, how do we know if you're truly converted? You don't practice lawlessness. You have patterns of repentance in your life and you do the will of God. That's what it says right there. What's the will of God? It's his word. So, how do we take all this and evangelize? Talk to someone about it. How do we tell them about Jesus' true and real and anchored and verifiable history? How can we explain to them who Jesus is, what he did, what he's doing, how those historical facts save us from ourselves and from sin and from Satan and from God's wrath? How can we call for a response to believe and repent? How can we organize all of this about the gospel in a way to tell others about it? Well, one of my favorite passages on evangelism is, is, is a passage we often use for like theological apologetics, which is for that, but defending the faith, but it's actually deeper than that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, the apostle says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation, Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ, set aside Christ, make sure you submit to Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready, there's our readiness, to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. With gentleness, and fear or reverence. I would love to do a whole sermon, and maybe we will sometime on that verse, but it's pretty simple. We give a defense for the hope that's in us. I think that's shorthand for our testimony. In the book of Acts, Paul was put on trial multiple times for what he believed about the gospel and given opportunity to explain it. Each 
recorded time. I think he did it many times, but each of the four times we have a record of, of Paul being put on trial, all four times, when given the opportunity to explain what he believed about the gospel, all four times, you know what he did? He gave his testimony. He did what Peter calls us to do before the council of Jerusalem, before Festus, before Felix, and before Agrippa. And as you work through his testimony and all four evidences of his faith, you find four steps. And here's what I want to show you. When he explained his testimony, this is to simplify everything we've said for you explaining your testimony. He first of all talked about sin, my personal problem, which is sin. So when you're telling someone your testimony, you say, listen, can I tell you, I was in trouble with God. I was sin, sinful. I, I knew it. I tossed and turned on my bed. And use your experience, not what I'm telling you mine was. I was afraid of the, of the coming of Christ. I was afraid of dying. I, was, I knew I was guilty. I knew I had a sin problem. And you know what? Secondly, God's personal solution. I found out, and you can tell them how you found out. It was a, something you're reading, a person who shared it with you, a, a book you read, a sermon you heard. I heard about God and what he did for me by sending his only son to die in my place, to give me his righteousness, to rise from the dead, to give me hope for eternity. God gave a solution in his son. And you know what I did? I believed and I repented. Does this sound familiar? Faith and repentance. I, my personal response was I believed it was true and I changed my mind about Jesus and I followed him. And then all four times that you look at Paul's testimony, and I think it gives us a paradigm too. It comes to God's personal invitation. You know what? You can be forgiven of your sins today. Sometimes we shy away from even trying to close the deal, as it were, or call for a response. Why not just ask a person if they want what you have? To say, I cannot tell you. This is my own, part of my own testimony. I'll tell people, I can't tell you how fearful I was of dying, how afraid I was of judgment, how every, every sound I thought, this is Jesus coming back and I'm gonna be left behind. I'm not afraid anymore. I'm afraid of dying, but not of being dead. And that peace is amazing. I would love for you to have that. I would love for you to have peace and forgiveness and security and hope and perspective. I would love for you to have that. Can I tell you how you can respond to that? And if you follow Paul's testimony in all four of these occasions, these are the four things he did. These are the four things that he covered. Personal, my personal problem, God's personal solution, my personal response, God's personal invitation. Very simple. Here's what I've noticed in being a, a Christian for four decades, okay? When I start with, can I tell you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Now, I've had people say, what does that mean? That's wonderful. But typically, they can smell, here comes this canned approach that they may have heard before. And if that's all you know, use it, by the way. Better to do that and have it rejected than to not do it. I've had people say, ah, I have never had anyone say no when I said this. You mind if I just take a minute and tell you something miraculous that's happened in my life? 
Now, they may cut me off mid-story, but no one's ever stopped that invitation to listen to that, if, if they have time. Don't do that in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. If they have time, they'll usually listen. Who wouldn't say that? And then you can go right into getting everything we've talked about for the last three weeks into your testimony. Your testimony, listen, friends, may be the greatest gift God has ever given you outside the greatest gift he's ever given you because it explains the greatest gift he's ever given you. And your testimony is miraculous, no matter what. This is, a, this is a miraculous testimony. I was pursuing drugs and alcohol and, and sex and, and uh, corruption and deception. And, I, I, and God drugged me out of a ditch and gave me the gospel. That's a miraculous testimony. You know what else is a, a miraculous testimony? In God's providence, he put me in, in a home where my mom and dad loved Jesus. And I grew up, what a miracle that God had me in a place where I grew up hearing the good news. But at one point I believed and I understood that God doesn't have grandchildren, only children. And my parents' faith became mine. And I believe. That's a miraculous testimony. Let me beg you to never think that your testimony is in any way rote or boring or unimpressive or not miraculous. Everyone is. So, I can't finish that without asking you, do you know the Savior? Are you a Christian? Do you believe the gospel and have you repented? Are you indeed a child of God because you believe He's given you the right to be his child because you've believed even in his name. And you've changed your mind about Jesus to such extent that you now, because of the mind change, follow him with every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. Not perfectly, but improvingly. Listen, if you haven't done that or if you're curious, if, if you're fearful that you don't want to be in that category of Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Breakfast is not as important. Lunch is not as important. Whatever you're doing next is not as important as leaving this room with security that you can go to heaven because of what God has done for you in Christ.